We have such a, a huge concept and huge passage to look at today. We're in 1 Corinthians 15, and um, we're going to bite off one of the biggest chunks of theology in one of the shortest uh, phrases and sentences that's in the Bible. And um, we've talked about this to d- th- before, but I'm going to just do a real slowdown to make sure we understand this because it affects so much in terms of understanding what it is that Christ had to do and what it is that Christ did in saving us. And it ultimately leads to unquenchable, undeniable, indestructible hope that we have in Christ. But to get to that place, to get to indestructible hope because of what Jesus had to do and what Jesus did do, we have to go through some of the darkest terrain in the scriptures. So that's what we're gonna do today, okay? So open up to 1 Corinthians 15 if you're not there already. And we're going to jump into um, that, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll do a little excursus into Romans 5 as well, okay? So, um, Romans, we're in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15, and I'm going to read verses 21 through 26. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. I would ask you to pray with me one more time. Lord, thank you for your help. Thank you for your word. Thank you for not giving us a vague faith, but a wondrous, courageous, unafraid, truth-telling, exacting faith. Reveal Lord, as much as we're able to handle and see today, as much as I'm able, Lord, to communicate with honor, reveal through your Holy Spirit and go beyond me and what I can communicate to communicate at the deepest level in the hearts of your people the things you want them to hear from your word today. And let it all lead to a strengthening of our hope in Jesus. And I pray for all those gathered that they would see Jesus. That through the mountainous terrain of darkness and the valleys of the shadow of death that we go through here, that they would see Jesus. Everyone. And I pray, Lord God, that through that there would be liberty for those who know you and liberty for those who have yet to know you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 
I want to focus on verses 21 and 22 this morning and then use them as a springboard for the rest of the passage. Verses 21 through 22. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Take a little trip with me through the last hundred or so years of human history. In 1918, 1918, it's 102 years ago, the First World War ended with a treaty signed in a city in France called Versailles. It's called the Treaty of Versailles. This war had begun with an an assassination of an obscure archduke in Central Europe and pretty soon brought all nations into war like dominoes, in part because of these alliances and deals that guaranteed one nation would come to the aid of another nation. By the time this war ended, out of this assassination of this obscure archduke from Bosnia, Herzegovina, that's where he was assassinated. He was actually, not that you care, he was actually the Austro-Hungarian Archduke. But by the time this assassination ended, 40 million people had been killed. 40 million people had been killed in about four years. And in its aftermath, (coughs) the horror was so great that a League of Nations was formed, sort of a a pre-UN. And it was formed to solve disputes diplomatically and thereby defeat the tragedy of war forever The hope was that a utopian age would rise from the ashes of the worst war I believe the world had ever seen. But this war to end all wars, which is literally what people called World War I, the war to end all wars, it crippled the losers, in particular this nation called Germany, leading to terrible economic hardship, horrible debt, national humiliation, And this was all too much for one very zealous, nationalistic Austrian corporal, this war veteran who rose to power some 15 years later through shrewdness and oppression. And Adolf Hitler ignored the Treaty of Versailles. He ignored the League of Nations, just blew it off, and he set fire to the world once again. Just a few short years, upwards of 80 million lives this time were lost in the new bloodiest war in human history. Utopia didn't follow, but probably the threat of nuclear annihilation has kept us from World War III thus far. But around the same time, if we go back to the beginning of our story, as World War I started, around 1917 to be exact, Russia entered a bloody civil war, leading to the utopian hope of communism. Communism was another attempt at utopia. Communism would liberate the masses from the oppression of religion, in particular, in this case, the Christian religion, and liberate the masses from the powerful elite and usher in a new age of prosperity and justice for all, including the masses of working men and women. It was to be a a new utopia. Historian David Satter calls communism the greatest catastrophe in human history with, by his count, 100 million 
lives lost to murder, oppression, forced, unnecessary starvation, and war. Coming back to the U.S., after World War II, we, our nation, achieved economic and military might unmatched in world history. Our advances in industry, technology, farming, medicine, made the U.S. the model of democracy and the envy of the world. U.S. leaders got used to referring to America as the greatest nation on earth and in all of history. If you followed politicians, national leaders long enough, you've probably heard that phrase plenty. We are the greatest nation on earth, the greatest nation in history. President Obama, quoting Lincoln, called America the last best hope on earth. As scandalous as that might sound to some of us Christians, he was quoting Lincoln. America is the last best hope of earth. And on the other side of the aisle, as recently as this summer, Vice President Pence used scriptural language pointing to Jesus Christ in Hebrews 12. And if you paid careful enough attention, you would notice that he replaced Jesus with a reference to the flag of the United States. America, the last best hope of earth. But millions in slave ships, oppressed by Jim Crow laws, that oppressed black Americans would object. 60 million unborn children murdered by their parents and supposed doctors, 60 million would object. And continual moral breakdowns in families, churches, cities, government, and foreign wars that many of us don't even realize we're still in. Unprecedented debt and current social upheaval would tell us all that we're not headed towards utopia quite yet. That's just the last hundred years. M misery and death is universal. It, it has no ethnicity. I focused on Western European nations mostly in America. We could recount the slaughter of Africa in the 90s where Rwandans butchered hundreds of thousands of their own people. I think in two weeks, 900,000 Rwandans were murdered by Hootsies and Tutsis. Or we could go to China and Chairman Mao, his Great Leap Forward program in the 50s that led to the deaths of up to 45 million of his own people. It knows no ethnic boundaries, this misery and death. But we don't need to look at world history. If the Lord would allow, we can just look at our own lives, right? We can look at our common propensity to knee-jerk towards selfishness, self-righteousness, our jealousies, our pettinesses, our lack of contentment, our desires and anxieties about money that tell us where our hope really is. Our battles with addiction to our phones, to media, to illicit images. The titillation we get from violence, from gossip, or the moral failures of others. That's just a click away. It's been said by not a few people, probably echoing the Puritans, that the closer one gets to God, the more one sees the ugliness of their own heart. I don't know if that's necessarily always true, but given my own familiarity with my lack of love for God and for others, 
that idea is about the nicest thing I can currently think to say about my heart. Why is the world like this? Why are we like this? Is it just the natural result of evolutionary instincts and survival of the fittest, kill or be killed? Is it human nature to go to war with nations, with neighbors, with spouses, and with our own good and our own consciences? No, it's not simply human nature. The word of God tells us something much worse. It tells us that our predicament is sourced in our first father, Adam. It tells us that Adam's sin, maybe more accurately, our sin in Adam has bound us to further sin, has bound us to Satan, and has bound us to death. That little phrase in verse 21 By a man came death. By a man came death. It's so much bigger and deeper and more horrible than we know. By a man came death. Through one man all died, Paul tells us. Last week I brought to your attention the fact that genetically, scientists agree, every single human being on this earth, man, woman, child, black, white, rich, poor, every ethnicity possible can be found to be sourced via DNA to one common father. You are related by blood to the Japanese, to the Ugandan. Last week, we talked about this also being the testimony of Scripture that we all descended from one man, and of course one woman too. But this idea that we all descended from this one man has terrible implications because of what happened with that one man. The scriptures tell us that not only our bodies, but all of us, our complete person, our body, mind, and spirit, our soul, is bound up in this one person. And that's what our passage is saying when it says, For as by a man came death. And in verse 22, For as in Adam all die. This is a reference to what theologians have called original sin. This idea that when Adam first sinned, he contaminated the souls of all who would come after him. We see this in many ways throughout scripture. Some of the most prominent examples are in Psalm 51 where David says, Surely, I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. David doesn't simply say, God, I did a terrible thing. I committed adultery and murder. That was the immediate context of his song in Psalm 51. He says, no, 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 it's much worse than that. It's not just these acts of terrible sin. It's my very heart, the very core of who I am. From the very moment I came into existence, I was corrupted and bent away from you and towards selfishness and sin. I was sinful from the moment I came into being. 
But this begs the question, is it fair for God to contaminate us for what Adam alone did? Does God punish the innocent for the guilty? It's a good question. You should ask it. But God would answer with another question. Do you know that you're separate from Adam? Or are you in some real way connected to him? See, we we need to conceive of existence and humanity the way God does. And God does not conceive of us as only individuals, but as a whole humanity. And therefore, when Adam sinned, God saw us as in Adam. And in a sense, sinning in him. One writer puts it this way. I'm taking parts of his paragraph here. Adam possessed the whole human nature in him. The universal nature became corrupt in Adam. And consequently, every individualization of it in the existence in the descendants of Adam is also corrupt. The universal human nature became corrupt in Adam and consequently every individualization of it in the descendants of Adam is also corrupt. We might look at it this way. Let's imagine this is Adam. Adam was created pure. This water is clear and pure. Sorry about the Redskins helmet back there. When Adam sinned, he corrupted his nature with sin. And that sin touched every part of him. His spirit, his soul, and his body. He became corrupt by that sin. Now you weren't there that day in your individuality and in your mind. But as a part of the human race, you were in Adam. And every descendant of Adam from that day forward comes into being corrupt with his corruption. That's you and me and the human race. Romans 5 puts it this way. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Verse 18, Romans 5. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. This is a really hard concept. Theologians who study this for years disagree about whether this means 
we are guilty of Adam's sin because we sinned in Adam or we're simply corrupted with Adam's sinfulness because of his sins. I, there are more iterations of, of this concept than I have time to talk about or have knowledge of. I don't find answers perfectly laid out. But I think we get to the same place any way we cut this. We were in all our potential in Adam when he sinned. This is how we became sinners. And we would have done what he did because we were in him in a sense when he did what he did. It doesn't work to say, well, I wouldn't have done that. I wasn't there. Because all that you would become, just like we showed with this, was in him when he did what he did. If you want to know what you would have done with God's grace and mercy and love, on that day when Satan seduced Adam, look at Adam. Because you are from him. Hebrews 7 gives us another point of evidence. In this passage, it's recounted that Abraham, the father of all the Jewish people, met a priest named Melchizedek. And Abraham offered a tithe, a money gift, to this great priest to honor Melchizedek. And in the passage, the author of Hebrews makes this curious statement. He makes the point that Levi made this tithe offering to Melchizedek. And the reason why I say it's curious is because Levi wouldn't be born for hundreds of years. But the author says that, in a sense, Levi was in his father's loins. That's pointing to his genetic material. And saying, Levi was there. He wasn't born yet. In a sense, he wasn't an individual yet. We're not talking about precarnation, that you existed before the day you were born. But the substance of you that came from your father's was there. So you can't separate yourself from your ancestors. You can't separate yourself from Adam any more than the drop of an ocean can separate itself from the ocean it came from. I'm going to great lengths to explain this difficult concept because the idea of our corporate communal identity in Adam is so crucial to understanding how grave the predicament we are is, is and why we cannot solve it ourselves and so that we can rest and understand how God solves it in Christ. There is no holy man who can solve this issue for you. There's no president who can solve this issue for us. There's no spouse or relationship. There's no pastor or priest. No one is going to get you out of this condemnation because of our sin in Adam and the death that flows from it. Because everyone is corrupted with it. And everyone, in a sense, in their substance, participated in it. When Adam was seduced by Satan to believe, despite every evidence to the contrary, all, despite all that God had done for him and showed him that he was good, that he was loving, that he was faithful, that he was worthy of honor and worship. When Satan gave Adam the opportunity to embrace the lie that God was actually unjust, that he wasn't truly loving, that he really wasn't good, 
but that he was hiding things from Adam. He was keeping from Adam what Adam should have, what was rightfully Adam's. And that if Adam would just go his own way, he could have what God was hiding from him. If he would, in a certain sense, become his own God. That was the attraction. You can be like God. In a real sense, our destiny was revealed and set in stone. We saw that day what we are as a human race. And all of human history, every sin since that day, every lie, every betrayal, every selfish thought is an echo of that day, confirmation of that day, the fruit of that day. We have, as a race, broken our lifeline. We did it that day, and we continue breaking it every day since to the only source of goodness, the only source of love, the only source of life. We have, as a race, I mean black, white, rich, poor, we have corrupted our souls. And God says we have come under Satan's rule and receive the sentence of God's just and eternal condemnation to death. Did you note that I said that as a human race, we are under Satan's rule? This is not something that slipped by God unnoticed. It's something that in God's judicial judgment, he allowed to happen and appointed to happen. And this is not something we talk about a lot, but it is, again, crucial for understanding the predicament of the human race and the power of God's deliverance. 1 John 5 tells us, the whole world is under the power of the evil one. When Satan tempted Jesus with the glory of all the kingdoms of the world, if he would bow down and worship Satan, the devil said something to him we gloss over quickly. He said, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me and I give it to whomever I wish in John 14 30 Jesus calls Satan the prince of this world and he says of him he has no hold on me Ephesians 2 talks about the life of believers before they came to Christ and here's what it says to those before they came to Christ you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Because of our rejection of God and his authority, we had no other authority except Satan's. And he's been given the right to rule the world that continues to reject God. Because of human, humanity's rejection of Satan, uh, of God, Satan has been given the right to rule the world that continues to reject him. His rule is not spelled out to us in detail. It is for certain a temporary rule. It is for certain a qualified rule. It is for certain a rule that can only take place as God allows. 
and God is able in his authority to make changes, adjustments, and limitations by his grace and mercy for people who don't know him, and he does that throughout history. Because at the same time the Bible says Satan rules, it says again and again so much more that God is the only ruler and the ultimate ruler of this world. But it is there. And it is real. And we're given a picture in scripture of how Satan works out his rule throughout the Bible. And it's typically, in the New Testament, it's not in accordance with so much, most of the time, with our wild imaginations of Satan's rule. Like blood coming out of walls, or making people's heads do 360s, or their skins burning at the touch of crucifixes or holy water. I'm not saying horrible things can't come to fruition in physical manifestations of demonic possession. But the the normal picture, the worst picture, the more devastating picture that we see is the devil as a scheming, deceptive, crafty, shrewd liar. He lies. The Lord said in John, he was a liar from the beginning. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he was a liar from the beginning. His chief weapon is deceit. He goes about lying to us about God and lying to us about our lives. It's what he did from the very beginning. Jesus said he was a liar from the beginning. I'm not sure if that wasn't an allusion to the very beginning in Genesis when the first thing that comes out of his mouth when he comes upon humanity is, did God really say this? He's asking a rhetorical question. He's not interested in her theological thoughts. He's trying to plant deception in her. He didn't really say this. He's not good. He's hiding from you what you should have. He's not good to you. He doesn't deserve your trust. He's petty. That's what he said. He said, God, he knows if you eat this, you'll be like him. He's worried about that. He doesn't love you. He's using you. He's trying to keep you from what's good. Follow your own way. You will not die. That's what he said to Eve. You will surely not die. He lies. And that's what he did in David's heart. We're told towards the end of the story of David's life, even after Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, Satan moved in his heart to count his mighty men. Satan moved in David's heart and said, David, put your hope in your army. Find out how huge your army is so you can find your security in your army instead of God. He does that with paychecks and insurance policies and threats of foreclosure. Find your hope in your money or find your anxiety in your lack of it. Satan moved in the Pharisees' hearts to clench their grip on their power over people and murder Christ. Jesus said, you're acting like your father, the devil. You try to kill me. Satan moved in Peter's heart to find his security on this earth. He moved in Peter's heart to make him oppose Jesus' path to the cross. When he says, Jesus, you will not die. You will not go to the cross. Jesus says, get behind me. Who? Satan, you don't have the thoughts of men, of God. You have the thoughts of man, man ruled by Satan, putting his hope in this world, not in God. 
listen, I'm as scared of like demonic possession as, as probably the next guy. But do you want to know what's demonic? Listen to what's demonic in James 3. Jealousy. He calls jealousy demonic. Selfish ambition. He calls selfish ambition. I want my way. I don't care what happens to you. He says that's demonic. Bitterness. I'm done with you. I'm done with this. He calls it demonic. Next time someone shows off their arrogance or makes a bitter comment, or it happens in your own heart like it can happen in mine, you can know that Satan's demons are close by doing their work. In short, Satan's work is to get us to love sin, to reject and keep rejecting God. Paul says that he blinds people's spiritual eyes so they cannot see the beauty of Christ. This is what he says in 2 Corinthians 4. The God of this age, he calls him the God of this age. He says he's blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Your friends and family who have not heard the message, who have heard the message of Christ and want nothing to do with Jesus, even if politely, they're not just operating out of their own free will. They have a co-conspirator who has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts according to their own desires. It's not that they would want God if it weren't for Satan. They would not. But in a, in a way we cannot fully understand, God allows Satan to seal them in their own willful rejection of him. Perhaps it might not be too far off to say that they close the door hard on Christ, but Satan locks it afterward. And what's the result of this? Our sin and Satan's rule. The result is death. In Adam, all die. The sin that seduces us, corrupts us, and binds us to further sin under Satan's rule, it leads to our death, body, mind, and soul. We're complete beings, and eventually we die completely. The wages of sin is death. When mankind rejected the author and the source of life, mankind was handed over to spiritual and ultimately physical death in an eternity without God. And here too, Satan is at work. Hebrews 2 calls him the one who has the power of death. He not only seduces us with sin and blinds us to the gospel, but then when sin and unbelief have done their work, Here's what Satan does next. He accuses us. And don't you know that in your experience? He seduces you into doing something you know you shouldn't do, and it's after you do it. He's right there, just impaling you with condemnation, hopelessness. This is what he's seen doing in the book of Job. He's accusing Job before God, accusing Job of just using God. 
not truly loving him. In the book of Zechariah, he's accusing Joshua, the priest, before God of his sins. In Luke 22, he comes to Jesus and asks for Peter's soul because of Peter's impending denial of Jesus. He says, I want Peter. Look what he's going to do. Give him to me. He's a rat. And what is he doing in Revelation 12? He's accusing the brethren night and day. And as I said last week, I do think we have an open line to those accusations. I think we hear that in our spirits so often. The common thread, though, of of all these scenes seems to be that Satan acts as plaintiff in the courtroom of God's perfect justice. And there in that courtroom, Satan makes his case against us, calling for our condemnation because of our sin apparently arguing for our eternal death because we have sinned against God. And so what is God's answer? This takes us back to the beginning of this chapter. Verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. God's answer to our predicament was that through death, Christ would conquer death. Through death, Christ would conquer death. See, our problem is first and foremost a problem of justice. It's a problem of justice. God won't do anything unlawful. So our predicament is that we are due the penalty of death for our rejection of God in Adam and in our daily lives. And God in his holiness must himself walk in holiness and in justice. And so someone has to die for our sins. So God's answer to our predicament is to take humanity, all who will come to him, and take our sin in him, become our sin, Become corrupt with our corruption. He who knew no sin was made to be sin. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he takes our sin He takes us, all of us, into himself. And then in that sin, he dies. He goes into the ground. But death could not hold him. He gives us who he is in exchange for who we were. 
And then he pours his life into us. Slowly over time, fixing the legal problem, he fixes the spiritual problem that results from it. God doesn't give us a good lawyer to argue with Satan that we really aren't that bad or that Adam acted without our permission or that original sin is weird or that Satan fooled an otherwise innocent mankind who would have loved him if it wasn't for that snake. He doesn't send someone to argue that our greatest problem is what others have done to us. No, he comes in the person of his son and he takes our sin and becomes our guilt and he bears the punishment we deserve. He takes all of it, our sin, our guilt, our death for us. Again, God does nothing unlawful and just as sinners must bear guilt and death, so God ensures they do in the person of his son when he brings us into his son and crucifies his son with us in his son, united with him as we were united with Adam, though spiritually and not genetically this time. For all those who will come to Christ for mercy, he becomes their sin bearer, their guilt bearer, their death sufferer. And consequently, sin has no power any longer to condemn you. For it has been condemned in your place, all of it. Sin has no right to keep you under its corruption. For Christ is the reason that you are set free from your corruption. He, he bore the consequence of your corruption on himself. And therefore corruption has no right to keep you any longer. Death has no right to rule you any longer. For Christ has tasted death for you. And so then, if sin and corruption and death have no right to rule over you any longer because Jesus has taken the penalty and the sin off of you and brought it onto himself, then what right does Satan have? Who was only given power over us because of our sin, what right does he have to rule over us any longer? What right does he have to be able to control us through his seductions or condemn us through his accusations? What power or authority over our lives is left for him? None. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. Jesus has undone what Adam did. Death is the result of our fall in Adam and the result of all our sins that come out of that fall. But in Christ, death has no right to rule us any longer. And having been freed from the penalty of our sins in eternal death, we must rise. We must rise. When we were saved at first, we rise spiritually. When you were born again, that means your spirit was born anew. But at Christ's return, you must rise physically because you aren't just spirit. Your soul and body, everything has to come up from Satan's dominion. Everything has to come up from death. Christ has reversed the curse. And the fullness of his victory, though it will not be tasted until he returns, it is ours now.
There's, a, there's certainly a future aspect to it, right? This is why our passage says in, in verse 24, then comes the end when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after, after destroying every rule, every authority, and power. Everything that opposes him, this means, by the way, it, it doesn't mean that he's never gonna have people who, who oversee things or minister things. He's talking about everything that opposes him. He is in the process of destroying every rule, every authority, and every power that opposes him. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So the full workings out of his conquering all his enemies. Happening, is happening in the present as he wins souls through his gospel. Each time a sinner turns to Christ, another part of Satan's rule is destroyed and overthrown. It's happening now. And the rest is still to come when every single manifestation of rebellion and corruption and death in heaven and on earth is destroyed. But the victory is assured because the lawful price has been paid. It would be literally a crime in the universe for God to not give full eternal life to any who trust in the simple gift of his son's work on their behalf. And this is how Jesus has and is and will destroy every rule, every authority, every power, every dominion. He didn't do it first and foremost by nuclear bombs and swords and armors and shrapnel and physical might and power. He did it through humiliation, through tasting death. He did it through love. A few final thoughts. First, may God help us to rejoice. My first application point here is just rejoice. This world is a very broken place. There's so much beauty. There's so, much, there's so many good things. But again and again and again, it just lets us down. And the world apart from Christ will continue to let us down. Some of us can get very, very anxious, especially around the presidential election time about what's happening to our country. And, and I just want to say again, as I said last week, there is no hope. And I know you know this, but, but there is no hope in the Republicans or the Democrats. I'm not saying don't vote or don't try to be a constructive citizen, but it's broken. People without God are broken and the fruit they produce is broken. And it will continue to be. I don't know what's going to happen to America. But I don't need to know to have peace. Because Jesus' victory is total. We, we don't see it all yet. But it will not yield. It's not going to stop for anything. What he began, he will finish in you and in the world. And no presidential election, no national chaos can stop Jesus' kingdom from advancing until every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We don't see it. We don't see it in our own lives. We struggle with this enemy called sin and Satan. 
But perfect faith and perfect love will finally have the final say in your heart and mine. Jesus has guaranteed it. Justice and mercy will pour out of the glory of God and will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Jesus has guaranteed it. He has purchased the victory on Calvary and out of the tomb it has been officially affirmed. To stay ready. Jesus told us that his coming, this final act we're reading about in 1 Corinthians 15, when he comes to destroy every lasting rule and authority and power, it says that his coming would be like a thief in the night. The world will be going about the business of this world. People will be surprised. That's the common theme in all of the eschatological passages about Jesus' second coming. People aren't date setting and getting it right. They are shocked. They are caught unawares. Lawlessness will keep increasing, he says. He asks rhetorically if he will even find faith on the earth when he returns. It's not a pretty picture. But what's certain is that people are surprised and shocked. Peter says the last days before his coming will manifest not just doubt, not just unbelief, but mocking. In the last days, Peter says, scoffers will come mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. I don't know if Jesus is coming soon, like literally in the next few years. It, it's harder, though, to think of a more apt description of how our culture's attitude about Christ is shaping than scoffing and mocking. But Peter says, God is not slow. A day is like a thousand years to him. He is patient so that all will be ready for his coming. His coming means judgment for the world that he doesn't want to bring. I think the paraphrase of, of Peter in the NLT has, has a sweet merit here. It says, So dear friends, while you are waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. Remember, our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. Peter says, Live peaceful lives that are pure, there's so much controversy to be dragged into all the time right now. We, we live in the most politically and socially polarized time I've ever seen. You can't enter your passcode before someone wants to start a fight that you can get interested in on social media and call you to arms. And so I just want to say again, remember our hope is not in America or Trump or Biden, but in Jesus does your anger and anxiety and fear proclaim that America is our best last hope? Or does your peace and your kindness and your purity declare that you're from another kingdom? God is being patient so that we might be a light. God is being patient and waiting so that we might be a means of saving people from hell, not saving them from whatever politics or ideology we fear the most. 
and lastly, pray. Pray. The more I, I read about spiritual warfare, we were talking about it at the, at the bonfire or the fire pit last night at the steels. The, the more I understand that, uh, that in a real sense, prayer is warfare. Jesus has won the battle, but we unpack that victory through prayer. And the battle lines are clear. They're, they're, very, they're very weighty. The Lord says that we are either in Adam or we are in Christ. We are either in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of man ruled by Satan. We can't save people on our own. But we live under the true king. And we have a right at his throne to plead with him to save. And Satan has no authority to keep us from this task. He has no authority to keep Christ's victory over sin and death from expressing itself wherever God desires. And God works through your prayers. So pray. Pray for your hearts. But pray for those hearts around you that are hard to God and don't know God. For he is coming. And he will come like a thief and he will, he will destroy everyone that opposes him. Now is the time of salvation. Now is the time where he is pleading through his church, through his people. Come, lay down your arms. Be reconciled to God. But that invitation, it has a terminus date when he returns. So may God give us grace to believe this, to feel the weight of it, and to be in prayer for those who need him. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would work through this message. Lord, I, I thank you for your word. I pray that you would restore to my heart a greater sense of the plight of the lost and of the great salvation you've won through your son. May you give us grace to love each other, to make the gospel our heart burden for people, to wait patiently for your son through enduring troubles, trials, tribulations in this earth, hoping in the final victory to come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.